This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for July 16th, 2020. The Find Something New edition. I'm David Plotz of Business Insider. I'm in Vermont, in my airy attic in Vermont. Thank goodness. Not my not my dank, fug, fuggy closet in Washington, D.C. I'm joined from New Haven, from her airy office in New Haven, by Emily Bazelon. I didn't even say your name right, Emily. <laughs> oh, Emily my Bazelon God. Chaos of the erupted. New York Times Magazine. <laughs> And Yale University Law School. Hello. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. John Dickerson is on vacation this week. Hard-earned, long-earned vacation. Hopefully rereading his book, recognizing how good his book is, being satis- smugly, satisfyingly rereading his book There's on a beach n- somewhere. John is never smug. Yeah, he wouldn't. that word, and he wouldn't He, w- he wouldn't be. I'm not saying it's actually happening. I'm just painting an imaginary picture. Come on. In any case... Sitting in for John, joining us. I don't know if you're making your GabFest debut or not, James Foreman. You may have sat in for me at some point, but you're making your Plots GabFest debut, certainly, is James Foreman Jr., professor of law at Yale, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning Locking Up Our Own Crime and Punishment in Black America. Hello. Joining us also from New Haven. Nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you. I did this once before some years ago, um, but I see, yes, I think you were not there. I remember it because it was in New Haven and it was shortly after the shooting of uh, Michael Brown. Yeah. I'm so glad that you and I get to be on the show together this time. On today's GabFest, the pandemic worsens. Is there any chance kids are going to get back to school? Should we hope that they are even going to get back to school at this point? Then the state of Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd protests. What's going on with police reform, with criminal justice reform, uh, with the movement itself? And then cancel culture. What is it? Is it real? How to understand it? This is a segment I'm looking forward to because I am completely befuddled and I'm looking forward to James and Emily explaining it to me because I don't understand anything that's happening. Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. On Tuesday, the Trump White House launched its new ad campaign to help the unemployed. Ivanka Trump help roll out their great new slogan, which is find something new. How can any of us find something new? Everything has collapsed. We're desperate. We're clinging on with our fingertips. There are not new jobs for the people who have been laid off. There's not a new world for all of us who wish there to be a new world. We are just stuck, stuck, stuck with the world that we have. Everything is terrible with this pandemic. Caseloads are rising in 41 states and they're rising at shocking rates. Deaths are also starting to rise. Mask wearing is increasing, but community spread is rampant. There's little contact tracing, quarantining, anything that we knew we were supposed to do. Emily, the governor of Oklahoma, announced this week that he has COVID-19, but has he increased restrictions or required masks or put in more funds for testing and contact tracing in his state? No, he hasn't. What, What can we do with this living hell that we are stuck with? 
I think we can make all the personal choices that we know are helpful. Um, and I don't know. I mean, it feels in the next four months like we are just going to stumble along in this terrible way. Um, I feel terrible not having some better solution thing to say, but it feels like the contact tracing, the testing that we needed, that we were supposed to be getting during lockdown that was going to allow us to live with the virus the way many people in Europe are figuring out how to do, is still lacking. And I don't, um, I feel kind of hopeless. I mean, I feel hopeless about the federal government's ability to do those things, to do anything other than pray and push really hard for a vaccine. Um, yeah, James? Help. Wow, I wish I could come in with something more useful on this one. I mean, I remember early on, right, when Trump was was rambling and lying and saying there was no, you know, crisis, and I never thought that he would sort of change based on concern about human suffering, but I did think that he'd be forced to take the virus seriously because, you know, the politics would uh, make it. Um, and I think my views were fairly commonplace at the time, but now we've learned like even cratering poll numbers won't make him do the basic of his job, which is to mobilize federal resources, right? And protect the country. And so I really do feel stuck like you, Emily. I mean, I rarely feel or say this. I'm generally that annoying, optimistic friend who in response to any complaint is like, yes, it's terrible, but here's what we can do to change it. Um, but it really does now feel like this, you know, shambolic narcissistic president and enablers have really produced a crisis that is bigger than what even the most dedicated school superintendent or mayor or governor um, can fix. I mean, they, those people can have an impact at the margins. And I, you know, I think in my city, in our city of New Haven in Connecticut, the uh, leadership has been strong. Um, but they're just real limits on the power that they have in a nation that's as mobile as this one and with a virus that only will be contained if everybody uh, does their part. So I don't know. Unfortunately, I do feel a little bit like you, Emily, that right now we just have to do our best to take care of our own families, our friends, our neighbors, uh, and mobilize for November. And, you know, people have talked about lack of access to testing, but also just the delays in testing results. Um, are this enormous problem. We were going, wanted to go on vacation with some friends and it was two families and we all said, well, we're all going to get tested a week before we were going to try to be together. Um, and we all did. After a week, nobody had gotten their results. So then we had to roll the dice and we all did go and meet up together in this house. And during the week, every, over day eight, day, day nine, day 10, we were getting results. You're negative, you're negative, you're negative. But you know what would we have done if somebody had tested positive? We would have really blown it. Let's go to a favorite subject of me and Emily, and I suspect of you, James, since you have a, a child, school. So President Trump has come to the conclusion, which so many parents have come to over the course of this hot summer, that we oh my God, we have to find a way to get kids back to school. It's going to break parents. It's going to break the economy. You cannot have an economy without parents being able to reliably count on their kids being educated and hopefully their kids being elsewhere while their kids are being educated. 
And so President Trump and Secretary of Education DeVos have, are animated about this. But their animation has taken the form of, of exhortation and bullying. They are simply shouting about schools have to get reopened and there is no particular plan about it. So this is sort of what we saw, Emily, with the reopening, the quote unquote reopening of the economy where the president was shouting and bullying and exhorting and the economy reopened and it was uh, turned out to be a terrible mistake because now we have this huge amount of community spread in states that reopened quickly. Are schools shaping up to be something similar where there's this a tremendous pressure to reopen schools because all of us who have school-aged kids really, really, really want them to go to school, but it's going to be a mistake. I think we we're seeing, I don't know if you guys saw the results out of Israel, where Israel reopened schools and there's been a tremendous uh, upsurge in cases that have come out of the schools thoughts. Emily. So just quickly about Israel, my understanding is that the school reopening was part of a surge of COVID there that was also connected to everyone thinking the country had vanquished the virus and like throwing away their masks. Like everything was open. They thought they were done. So I'm not sure how much you can really single out the schools for blame, but that's really a side point. What I find so maddening and enraging about um, Trump and Betsy DeVos this week is that they're doing worse than nothing. Because by bullying and threatening, I mean, they're threatening to take federal funding away from schools that desperately need many more resources and a lot of other kinds of support in order to reopen. And they are doing this bullying and urging without any regard to what the infection level is in a particular community or city or state, which seems like a crucial, it is the precondition. In fact, it is the CDC's precondition. It's every public health expert's precondition. And they're behaving as if this question of school opening has nothing to do with all the other problems with addressing the virus that we were just talking about. And also, they are incredibly politically divisive figures. So if you're someone who lives in a city who knows people who died, maybe especially someone in a community of color or low-income community, and you have plenty of reasons not to trust the government and not to trust this government, hearing people order you back to school, order the schools open, is going to make you less likely to trust that happening. And so... You know, I think my deepest fear about the virus always, in addition to just like the death that it brings, is the way in which it, in, it exacerbates inequality. And I really see that happening with the schools. You hear about private schools getting their acts together. You know, Yale University, where James and I work, has a ton of resources. Now, residential colleges are different from K through 12, but still, there are resources to try to do something very difficult. Whereas, you know, our schools that our kids are pub the public schools in New Haven, like they are strapped in a really different way. And you can see parents making a rational decision that it won't be safe to send their kids back, even if they do open. And that's in a state where the infection level is low. The places where it's high, it just seems like it's increasingly out of reach. And this for me, I'm just not going to get over this tragedy. It makes so, me so upset. James, if you were if you were the czar, the COVID czar that we don't have, if you were named Bill Gates and they had named you COVID czar months ago. At this moment, what would you do about schools? 
wait, if I had been named, if I had been named months ago, we wouldn't well, be now. at this moment. I mean that, but the, your, Thank to you. me, your question <laughs> is exactly, right, fair, no, but, fair no, but it, okay. but right, it's no. so much the point. But we can't look backwards. We, yes, you, you can. We know. It's a, no, it's a, we know it's a wildly incompetent government. It is the worst government that imaginable. It's terrible, but we are in the state we're in. So let's say we're in this moment now. You can you can reject the premise of my question and go back to March if you want. But I we 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 know that this is the worst government that we could possibly have at this moment. What do we do given that? No, I agree, and I will answer the question. I do. It does feel to me though like it's this hostage taking situation where they have deprived us of all reasonable options that any country with our wealth and resources and talent would have exercise. And now we're, th- we're in this absolutely impossible situation. And the notion that the people that created this problem would even be bothering to open their mouths to offer an opinion about what a school superintendent or a teacher or a mayor would do right now is just outrageous and appalling. But okay, fine. I, I want to go back to your hypothetical. Am I the at the federal level now, or am I this uh, school superintendent? Federal level, but you have vast, vast powers. Yeah, no, at the federal, I mean, we would do the things that that the public health experts and that many countries around the world did, you know, three months ago and four months ago. We would massively invest in our testing capacity, including not just the availability of tests, but the processing of tests so that people can get results back right away. We would invest in the actual type of test so that we would get we would get high quality tests that have one and two day results as opposed to uh, the longer tail that we have now. We would massively invest in contact tracing from the federal level uh, so that we could start to stop some of this community spread. We would send the message from the top down at every press conference and otherwise, we would send the message that wearing masks is not a political act. It's the public health act. These are just basic things. You don't even have to, like, it's not even imaginative exercise. It's just looking at the countries that have actually controlled this much better than we have and do what they've done. And it's, it's not too late. We can, I mean, it's too late. We've created now damage that we will never undo, but it's not too late, as your question suggests, to start doing it today. I think for the schools, I would buy a ton of tents and take over the parking lots like I that and, and other ways of just expanding our vision of what school is like, especially for the middle and high school kids. They don't have to have all of the electives and all of the moving around like they need to be doing more. We need a stripped down version that is more compatible with the challenges of covid and has some learning, but also just allows them to be together in some way. And just to follow up on that, and thank you, Emily, for sort of helpfully pointing me to the the school-specific aspects of the question. Um, But on that, the other thing that I would do is I would massively and immediately invest in the uh, technological capacity of all students to participate in remote, distance, virtual learning, whatever you want to call it, right? Every kid gets a laptop. Every house has... Uh, it has broadband and related, I would invest in schools to buy teacher time and resources so that the teachers would be able to create those lessons plans. One of the tragedies that we had in New Haven this spring where, where my child was in the public school system was that 
the teachers weren't doing online instruction. There was some privacy concerns too. Some privacy concerns, houses. although lots of other districts did it. So what yeah. I would do is I would use the I would I would use the federal government to go look at those school districts that did distance learning relatively well, and there are some. I have friends in Washington D.C. who had a much better experience. Oh, really? My kids are in public school Haven. in Washington D.C., and I would. Say- Oh, okay. So not DC, somewhere else, or maybe, or maybe, maybe DC was bad, but but better than New Haven. I'm not sure. Um, And and I would figure out the few places that have done this really well. Maybe you look at some of the private schools and you try to ramp up the resources uh, so that public schools, especially those that are serving low income kids and kids with special needs, have the ability to do those things. So I have a a question about the politics of this. What is Mitch McConnell thinking? So, okay, like take Donald Trump out of the equation for a moment because he seems to be drinking the Kool-Aid of imagining that the polls are all fake and everyone loves him because there's a boat parade. But Mitch McConnell is like a person who lives in reality. And the Republicans so far have been refusing to extend the kind of aid to schools or state and local governments or even continue to fund additional unemployment benefits. They see the poll numbers cratering. They know that this election is happening in November. It looks like things are poised to get worse in the country, not better. Why aren't they doing something about it? I don't understand that I, part. That that is literally the question that I had teed well, up. Well, now for, you have to answer you guys it. Too. I only got there first. Yes, it is. It is bizarre. So, so we have a we have a the House Democrats have passed a three point five trillion dollar uh, emergency relief bill, that, which would be the fourth or fifth of those bills, and even that one, which was passed about a month ago, doesn't have enough for schools in it. And so, there's a proposal, I think, for another four hundred billion, most of which would go to schools and child care centers. Uh, that Democrats are pushing in the House. The Senate, meanwhile, and the Republicans in the White House are talking about numbers, which is we can't have a bill that's larger than a trillion dollars. And most of what they're talking about are things like uh, certainly diminishing the the bonus unemployment benefits that people are getting, cutting that number way down, sending another stimulus check, but but cutting the the income cap at which you'd get that check from $75,000 to $40,000. Things like like capital gains rollbacks, nonsense like that, and nothing significant around schools, uh, and nothing significant around aid to hospitals, and and it's bizarre. It is it is one of the most peculiar policy choices I've ever seen. This is a moment when Republicans can spend drunkenly on whatever it is they want. It will help them electorally. No one ideologically is going to hold it against them for having done it. Because there's no moral it's a, it's hazard. A moment of desperation. There's no, yeah. Well, there is a moral hazard, but like the moral hazard of not doing anything is much greater. And it it is utterly perverse. And I assume that what's going to happen is that in about two weeks we're going to realize, oh yeah, they're negotiating a bill, and it's going to come in. We're going to get a bill that's two point five trillion. It'll be closer to what the Democrats want. It won't be as much as Republicans. Uh, it won't be as much as what Democrats want, but it'll be pretty significant. And and a lot of the stuff will start to happen. But it is really strange because it is the only thing, the only thing Republicans can hope for for November is that the economy is in some kind of slightly reasonable shape and they are seen as reasonably decent stewards of that economy. And they're abandoning that right now. And it's, 
I mean, maybe it's maybe they're living on their principles. Maybe these are these are actual principles that they they genuinely believe in. But it's really, really weird. I don't know. I think part of it is what you said, uh, David, that they believe it. And part of it is, you know, we're saying it's a crazy political strategy. Um, but they say we've been winning. We've got a majority on the Supreme Court. We have a majority of state governorships and state legislatures. We've got the presidency. We have a majority in the Senate. I mean, we've been told before that our strategy isn't working and we control 90% of the levers of government. So keep having your podcast, but we'll keep having the power. <laughs> the podcasts are, podcasts are coming. For you, man. <laughs> there's, a huge, there's a huge podcast relief element. The Democrats are putting, there's I think 12 billion just for podcast relief in the bill. Uh, no, that is a joke. That was not serious listeners. The other point about that, that I wanted to make, which is if you are a Democrat and you're thinking about what might come after November, recognizing that unless Democrats capture the Senate and the house and the presidency, there is no chance that they're going to get any significant relief bills or, or, or stimulus bills out of Congress for years to come. There, the, we saw this in the Obama years, that if Republicans have the capacity to block that large-scale government spending during a Democratic presidency, they will block it. And so Democrats need to remember that, that unless they also win the Senate, this is the last bill they're going to get. I want to finish this segment, Emily, with one point or one question for you, which is, I don't know if you guys saw the story about the CDC is no longer getting hospitals data about COVID patients. Did you guys yes, see this? Yes, you wrote about it. I mean, I want to ask you, because you must have thought about this. This just seems like a total disaster. I mean, what it the presentation was that, oh, the data is going to go to this private company and then to the Department of Health and Human Services. First of all, why do we have a private company in the middle of all of this? And second of all, is this really just about taking money away from the CDC, especially because it happens in a week where some parts of the Trump administration started, like, <laughs> weirdly attacking Tony Fauci, who is their expert? Right. And so so what it comes down to is the CDC has been the hub of data from hospitals about COVID, about hospital hospitalization rates, about death. Uh, and it is historically that it is the, the hub of that. It is also true that the CDC is terrible at handling the data. Its systems are outdated. It does a lot of stuff by fax. Who knew there were so many fax machines left in America? Um, so it's not that the CDC is doing a particularly good job, but it is the, it has been the data hub, and it's also a place where the data is all public. And now it is, as Emily said, this data is going to go instead through a private company to an HHS database, which is not public, which is subject to whatever forms of manipulation, hiding, uh, massaging that the Trump HHS secretary wants to do. This is just one of many, many examples that we've seen in the past several years of the Trump administration manipulating, massaging, warping, hiding, changing data, which has historically been one of the most important uh, sources of government uh, excellence in the United States is that we've been a great gatherer of data and disseminator of data. And the Trump is eroding that trust. It's eroding our capacity. And here we have a case where now we're not going to necessarily know how many people are dying, how many people are hospitalized, and researchers uh, won't be able to understand it. The public is not going to have a sense of it. And this feels to me like a really significant um, moment and a, and a 
and a really bad sign about the degradation of government under Trump. I got nothing. Not coming back on that one. Slate Plus members, you guys bonus segments on the GabFest and on other Slate podcasts. And today, if you go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus and become a member, you're going to get a bonus segment where we're going to talk to James about the access to law school program that he is starting. Super interesting, very important, and we're going to have a great conversation about that. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus today to become a member of Slate Plus. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister, or friend, an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. George Floyd was killed seven weeks ago in Minnesota. It has been an extraordinary, extraordinary period since then. There was a month or so of really, really active protest all around the country. Uh, it has quieted down. There's still still activity in certain cities and certain places for certain reasons, protests over the police, over funding for the police, over the militarization of the police, over statues and Black Lives Matter murals. Uh, there's been discussions of reframing law enforcement and criminal justice. It's been an amazing variety of discussions and activity since then. James, I know this is something that you've been following what what is it? Where are we with the protests, the protest movements? And first of all, start with where 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 is there still active? Uh, is there, where is there still activity on streets and in in cities and in 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 towns? I mean, I think it's still happening everywhere. Just just a day ago, there was a seniors' march on the New Haven Green. It's an example of a a relatively small scale but still significant protest that isn't getting necessarily the kind of press coverage uh, but that they did in the first month, but that are continuing to happen. So on the protest front, um, I think it's, it's certainly reduced in number uh, that happens, um, but I think there's still a lot of activity. And I think that 
we've also seen some of the protest activity now kind of channel itself into really more specific and concrete uh, activism at and in, in mayor's offices and at city council offices and in state legislatures. Um, and so I think, you know, the protesters are, are some of the protesters are still there. Uh, they're just now um, at hearings in the state capitol uh, when they were previously on the streets. Stay with that for a minute. So give a few examples of towns or states or cities where there is action at a legislative level or where, where there's regulatory change that's happening that you've been tracking? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, just uh, yesterday, Pennsylvania passed a law that would create a statewide database for officers who uh, had been uh, found to you know, be in violation of a particular city's policies and had been disciplined. So this is to try to get at this idea that you get fired in one place and then you just get hired uh, in another office. In Boston, uh, I've been uh, following the story in Boston a little bit because there's been really some staunch advocacy around the size of the police department in the city of Boston. The ACLU of Massachusetts has this really stunning uh, report, which I just looked at yesterday um, for the first time, but it does a fabulous job of examining the police budget in Boston and revealing these mind-blowing numbers about how it is that law enforcement budget became so bloated and is crowding out other priorities that the city might care about. I mean, that just, just to stay on Boston for a second, the, the, the police budget in Boston is three times larger than what's devoted to health and human services, four times larger than what's uh, devoted to public health, 10 times larger than the library. And it just goes on and on and on. Um, and a lot of it is driven by overtime. Um, and again, I'm focusing on Boston now, but this is a conversation that I'm seeing activists have in Minneapolis and Oakland, uh, in Chicago and Los Angeles and Atlanta, is that these bloated overtime budgets. Um, so 15% of the Boston Police Department uh, budget is focused on overtime. That's $60 million. And a lot of it comes from these contract provisions that do things like, uh, say, if you go to court, you get a four-hour minimum. No matter how, many how much time you actually spend in court, you get paid for four hours. Um, and so, uh, so that's Boston. Uh, in Minneapolis, you know, I think very kind of famously discussed, the city council is really devoted to reimagining the entire police department and building it from the ground up. And they're engaged in what they say is going to be a nine-month community-wide process. And when people first heard nine months, I think a lot of people said, well, that, you know, that feels like too long. But the truth is this, the job of rethinking what it is that your police department is going to do and how it should be staffed is, this is not easy stuff. I think it's being kind of appropriately uh, done there. In Connecticut, Gary Winfield, which is a state legislator, African-American state uh, legislator from New Haven, has been pushing police accountability measures for as long as he's been in government, you know, 15, 20 years, along with people like Robin Porter, and they just never have gotten very far. But right now, the Connecticut legislature, which is much more conservative in some ways than you might think, is, is really taking up very specific things about uh, police accountability and budget allotments, which is those two, to, to me, those are the two big issues, accountability and the size of police departments. 
The other thing that is distressing, but I think important to the conversation, is there's been an increase in shootings and homicides in certain cities, Chicago, Baltimore, New Haven, actually. And Mm. I think, you know, it's important to include that because it reminds us what we need the police for and what they should be spending their time on is dealing with violent crime. And it also, for me, is a reminder of the fact that people whose lives are impacted by crime, like, feel that. They want good policing. So it just feels like in this conversation, we sometimes, the the idea that the police are going to go away entirely, these shootings are a reminder that, like, that's not going to happen. And it's a matter of having them be much more wisely and concentratedly deployed. I was looking at those stories about shootings. So the police line is, oh, it's because you've shackled us. We can't do our job. You're yelling at us. You're not cooperating with us. And that's why you're getting crime in your cities. It's your own fault communities. And then there's a sort of a, there's a, another take on that, which is, oh, actually the cops are just not doing their jobs. There's a, there's a, a blue flu quality to it all. Do you think any of the shooting and the rise in violence has to do with the cops not doing their jobs, either because the public is objecting to them doing their jobs or they've decided they're not going to do their jobs? So, I mean, first of all, people are getting more desperate right now. And I think the summer is a time where homicides and shootings go up generally, but especially in COVID times where you've had all these people cooped up and they're starting to be deeper economic fears. I wonder if that is going to wind up having more explanatory power than anything to do with law enforcement. In the past, where we've had exactly the competing narratives, David, that you just laid out, um, there's been research on both sides. It's pretty confusing, I find, this um, set of accusations. There are some studies that suggest that the police stand down after a video of a shooting goes viral, and so then you can decide that that's the fault of the protests, or you can decide that the police are kind of deliberately withholding in that blue flu sort of way that makes it seem like it's their fault. Or maybe it's just a dynamic in which um, police are more conscious. They're not necessarily out on the streets in the same way. And then there are a small number of bad actors. There's always a small number of people in the community who are doing shootings who kind of take advantage of that. Either way, my understanding from talking to police chiefs like Scott Thompson, who was the retired police chief in Camden, is that what you need is not like a lot of stop and frisk a lot of the um, kinds of low-level arrests that often are unconstitutional anyway and alienate people. What you need is a presence of police so that people feel them in the neighborhood. They don't necessarily have to be out there like doing minor arrests. You need their presence and then you need them investigating these major crimes. And to do that well, you have to have the trust of the community because it all depends on people telling you what they know. Emily, the point that you just made about investigations uh, versus stop and frisk is, I think, completely under-discussed when we have this broad-based discussion of, you know, well, do we have, you know, too many police or too few police? You know, if you look at the statistics, the United States actually has a relatively low number of police officers compared to certain European countries. But what we do is we have those officers over-deployed in this preventive, prophylactic, stop-and-frisk kind of harassment 
and we have them underdeployed on the investigation side. So anybody who you know, is thinking about this should read Jill Leovi's book, Ghetto Side, that came out uh, four or five years ago and is focused on LA, but it's absolutely a true story nationally, which is to say that we have homicide detectives and robbery detectives. David, you talked about fax machines that are still trying to, that are trying to get their fax machines to work. And yet we have this sort of onslaught of stop and frisk. I just, I mentioned Boston. I'll just say it one more time. With all of that budget that I just talked about, what was the proposal from the police department for this upcoming year? It was to increase the number of field officers, those out on the street, and to decrease the number that uh, are devoted to investigations. So when black communities, uh, focusing on black communities, because that's, that's what I've studied about and write about the most, when people say, you know, we want police officers, one of the things that they're saying is that we want people to come and investigate the crimes that are committed uh, right now in our neighborhoods, but it can take two, three, four, five days to even have a detective come to your house to take an incident report after you've reported a robbery or a burglary or something like that. So it's not just the number, but it's also how we we allocate these officers that we have to spend some time focused on. That is such a Great point. And so I've I've heard it made before, but never so clearly. What was the policy decision that that ended up with us doing this? It doesn't seem like as I think about it, it doesn't seem to make sense to me. I would have thought that we'd want to have lots of people investigating things and that cops would want to have those kinds of jobs. How did we end up in a world where where cops are doing things where they're just harassing black people instead of investigating crimes? I mean, broken windows policing, right? Like that took off and people thought that it was working in the 80s and 90s. And it sort of, I don't, James, is there a more sophisticated answer? No, I think that it, I, I think that's it. I mean, I think it was, it was exactly, it was the, it was the kind of intellectual argument behind broken windows. And then, you know, we can never overstate the impact that the New York Police Department in particular has on the national conversation about policing. And their absolutely full-throated, over-the-top embrace of the most aggressive style of stop and frisk, combined with crime decline numbers, which again, later, it turned out a whole bunch of cities that weren't doing that stop and frisk had those same crime crime declines. And New York continued to have those crime declines after they stopped the stop and frisk. But in that moment, in the late 90s, early 2000s, when people were so scared, based on the higher crime rates in the 80s and 90s, when New York comes in and they talk about stop and frisk working and winning, uh, and with their publicity department and their communications and their, you know, how many people pay attention to them, it really had an impact on the national conversation. And speaking of the NYPD, the New York Times did this sort of amazing video project this week in which they went through lots of video from the protests after George Floyd testing, the NPD had claimed that they only used force um, very rarely, you know, that that any excessive use of force was very much the exception. And in fact, in these videos, there are more than 60 instances of what looks like unreasonable, unnecessary use of force. The vaunted image of the NYPD does not really hold up um, to this reality that 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 a lot of people just saw in the course of these protests. There was an op-ed in the New York Times, actually, to this question about uh, who the police are, what they're doing, why they're doing it. An op-ed in the Times 
making the case that if you want to abolish the police or if you want to defund the police or if you want to change the way police work, become a police officer. The analogy, of course, Emily, is a world that you know, which is reform prosecutors in a lot of cities who have changed how laws are being enforced and prosecuted, especially minor minor crimes are being enforced and prosecuted in those cities. And one way that's happened is that people who had previously worked on the defense side or had not worked in criminal law on the prosecution side decided, you know, we're going to become prosecutors and we're going to change the system. Do you think, Emily, that this this model can work for the police where you get a bunch of progressive minded young people who say, I'm going to go become a police officer and I'm going to change the system from within? So I feel the same way about this. I feel about the idea of working for a progressive prosecutor, which is I'm all for ethical, smart, um, good people throughout the criminal justice system. I totally agree that's crucial. I think if you really want to do this, you have to choose very, Mm -hmm. very carefully because you can easily, without meaning to, become part of the problem. Um, This was brought home to me with police very poignantly when I read that incredible story about um, the African-American officer who was one of the four people present at George Floyd's death. He had actually gone into the Minneapolis Police Department with the intention of making it better. But then as this new recruit, like in one of the first days on his job, there he is like part of this just excruciating tragedy. It's really hard to square that. Now, that's really dramatic and I hope unusual, but I do think that If you are going into a profession and you're going to have to spend some number of years without a whole lot of power working your way up, you have to think a lot about the environment you're going to be in and whether you're going to be able to do what feels to you like good work. James, what do you think? You know, I couldn't agree more. And I do think the analogy to prosecutors really does hold. I mean, for the long time, when students would come to me and say they wanted to become prosecutors, I would... Uh, you know, and these are students that say, I want to change the system. I want to resist mass incarceration. I want to fight racial bias. Uh, and the prosecutors have more power. So I'm thinking about becoming a prosecutor. And I, a former public defender, and I would tell them, I think that they're making a mistake. Uh, and it was for exactly the reason, Emily, you said that I think that in the 90s and the 2000s, they were going to be going into environments that were going to be so hostile to their vision of what they were going to do. And they thought they would change the culture of the office, but the office was going to change them. And that's a point that Paul Butler has made very powerfully in his writing. And I think it holds as applied to police departments. So now when I'm talking to students that are thinking about becoming prosecutors, I say just what you said, Emily, which is that it's a pretty small list, but that there is a small list of prosecutors, I think, who have a vision that would align with where these students are trying to go. And those chief prosecutors, they actually desperately need a staff full of young prosecutors who buy into that vision because their problem is they may be wanting to bring reform, but they're trying to bring reform to uh, an office that's full of people that maybe doesn't want to change their behavior. So on the police side, I do think it's harder because I don't think there's a clear cut list, as clear a list of departments that you know, I would advise people to go to. I'm not sure really where to send anybody other than, you know, the Camden, New Jersey that everybody always talks about. And it's a little sad um, that when we're talking about reform, we keep coming down to this like relatively 
you know, small city. A in, city with 75,000 people. Yeah, in New Jersey is like our go-to example. It's like the new Sweden, right? For Let them have their day, man. Let Camden have its day. No, uh, you're right. So you're much right. bad press. But so, so, so I don't know where to tell people to go, but I do very much like the impulse. Um, David, I do want to say just one thing. In your, the way you framed the question, and I think it's an important distinction, but you said, you know, if you want to abolish the police or defund the police or reform the police, go and and be this kind of officer. And I do think there is a, a distinction between, I don't think abolitionists would embrace that. They would not say. They would reject what both Emily and I, even the limited story we're telling, um, uh, they would reject. Right. I mean, you have to, if you reject the system, you don't want to have incremental change that saves it. You want to just like dismantle it and start over again. So that is a really important distinction to make. So I saw a really uh, unsettling statistic this week, which is that Republicans are half as likely to be sympathetic to demonstrators as they were a month ago. When the protest movement, the Black Lives Matter, George Floyd protest movement was picking up steam, there was a tremendous universal, almost universal in this country sympathy for it. And now for Republicans, for Democrats and independents, that sympathy remains. For Republicans, it has subsided. Is that something to be concerned about, Emily? Yeah, it is. Um, It suggests a kind of limit or like expiration date on empathy and on thinking across lines, um, especially of race, since um, there's so many more white people who are Republicans than people of color who are Republicans. Um, I find that really dispiriting. James, can you pull out some optimism on this one, please, for us? Well, I do. No, I do think it's it's I don't know that I'm going to give you the, the I, you know, I promised early on that I was that I, that I was going to be this optimist. I'm not sure that I've quite de- I, yes, I don't know that failing. I've quite delivered, totally not delivered. <laughs> delivered <it yet. laughs> stay, on, stay on for Slate Plus. That's where you'll get the uh, that's where you get that's the right, optimism. Actually. But, but I, so I, some of this has to do with how people take cues from right from from national leaders. And so I think early on people saw. Uh, they saw the murder itself, and they saw a bunch of police officers and police unions even around the country condemning uh, what happened to George Floyd. Um, and there was a little bit of silence from from the White House. And now I think that Trump has really decided to run on this aggressive anti-protest, anti-racial justice campaign. I think that some of these Republican voters who are either watching these ads or just consuming the media environment, their attitudes are starting to, to, to line up with um, what, they, the, what the leaders believe. We're going to do a segment now about cancel culture. And I am honestly as fuzzy about the conversation we're about to have as I have ever been about Which is anything. so weird. This as is like a conversation made for you. How I, have you gotten so I confused? Just, <laughs> I'm just so, I find it so hard to follow. So I, I want to lay out what I my sense of what I think has happened. And then you guys will take it from here and I'll just ask questions and listen. So as I see what's happened is that the Black Lives Matter protests lit a series of, or or kind of planted a whole bunch of seeds around the country, which have grown in different ways. And there was a, some of them are directly coming out of the, the conversation we just had around police reform and police funding is one big one, sort of central one and police violence. There are also things about, representation and uh, the, the taking down of statues, 
like the renaming of bases, the fight over the Confederate flag, and the, the way that the president has has kind of moved into that is another one. And then cancel culture, the kind of the the flowering of the debate about it is another, not offshoot, but it's it's been it's been accelerated by what happened with these protests. And what I see, or again, just from my reading, there's this series of skirmishes that's played out in magazines that I have not been reading for a while, and on Twitter. There was a letter in Harper's signed by tons of public figures in academia and journalism, a counter letter, raging Twitter debate, a vast array of columns and essays from the left and the far right. And then there's this person named Barry Weiss, who is a person who merely to say her name is to bring some kind of curse upon yourself, apparently, like just to talk about her is to end up, you will spend the next month talking about her. Um and this is all being carried out in the midst of the greatest economic and public health catastrophe. Wait, you didn't say century. anything about Barry Weiss. So, if, for the readers, out I don't there, understand. He's a f- I don't understand. You're going to explain it. You're okay. going to explain it. Also, our you listeners left know. Our listeners know. I feel like he would be really dismayed by that choice. Anyway, go ahead. Continue. Anyway, this is all happening in the midst of this total national catastrophe, the misrule of the most dangerous president in history, and there's this enormous fight that's going on in academia, journalism, sort of public intellectuals, Twitter, that is about something, and I just am not sure what it's about. And I please, would you please explain it to me? What is the fight about? What is What are we talking about? Who is, who's at issue? What's at issue? Why is it at issue now? Barry Weiss was a New York Times opinion editor and writer. Um, she wrote a resignation letter that was about her complaints about the Times and how she'd felt um, bullied and also that she was being punished for what she called wrong think capital W. I actually recommend on this front a piece Ross Douthit, another New York Times writer, he wrote a piece just sort of explaining what he thinks canceling and cancel culture is, and I thought it was very incisive, and I recommend it. So basically, the definition of getting, quote, canceled is to either be fired or have your reputation severely um, tarnished by people attacking your ideas. And obviously, people get fired for lots of other reasons all the time. There are efforts to impose this kind of cancel cost from both the right and the left. The real fighting about it right now is sort of this internecine fight on the left. And so, yes, David, like amidst all the other problems we have, this can feel like it's small. And and the timing of it seems really troubled and weird to me, actually. But I think a lot of people who did sign this letter that ran in Harper's that was sort of like finger wagging are concerned that the boundaries are shifting in kind of the world of public intellectuals in a way that is making it harder to express contrarian ideas, that there are costs for deviating from a kind of, um, in their view, increasingly narrow liberal framing of the big conflicts in our world. So I think the question is whether that's correct or not, right? Like, to me, the timing of this seemed all wrong. So I actually chose not to sign that Harper's letter because it seemed to me either like a really unassailable statement of support for a broad range of views and free speech, which I am totally down with, or a kind of shot across the bow at a moment when there are these really important critiques about racial justice and who gets to speak and who has power in journalism and in the kind of world of letters, 
Like, and all of that's just sort of bubbling to the surface and starting this debate. And I don't want to be someone who's like undermining it right now. Anyway, that's my my first salvo. James, what was what are, have you been following this? Do you feel like it matters? What are what are what's your reaction? Yeah, no, I have been following it. I mean, I think the points you all have, you know, made so far, like for right, David, first of all, your point about like, well, what exactly is this, you know, that we're talking about? And then Emily, your point about the timing. I mean, both of those feel like, you know, important points to me. I mean, for me, I, I, I toggle back and forth bec- about the utility of this conversation, because sometimes it feels, you know, important, even urgent. And then other times it feels pointless and exhausting. And it, it often just feels um, impossible. I mean, it, it seems like there's right two ways into the conversation. And the problem is neither of them is 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 super fruitful. One is to start with a specific case. Was this person, Barry Weiss or whoever you want to talk about, were they treated fairly or not when they were fired or criticized, had their reputation tarnished, et cetera? And that all, all seems almost hopeless because we're never going to know the detail enough details about how to adjudicate that. And where we land, I think, is more often going to be about how much we agree with the views of the person that uh, has been criticized. That's, to me, the trouble of kind of working from the specific to the general. And the problem with working from the general to the specific, Emily, you kind of made the point when you said, well, the letter at one level, like what, you know, kind of what could you disagree with? Um, So, um, right, it's true. It's true that people are rude and some people are rude and mean and that social media in particular seems to be built for kind of outrage and sometimes even cruelty and that you know twitter is where nuance goes to die and all right all of these things are 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 true and it's also true that the best way to counter bad arguments is you know not to wish them away but to confront them that you know good faith disagreement shouldn't get people fired or demoted, and 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 I at least want to live in a world where people generally get second chances, and we try to repair relationships rather than you know rupture them. Right? Those those things all feel right to me, and any letter that says things like that, you know, I would be inclined to endorse. And at the same time, right, it's also true that. People in power should understand that criticism, sometimes even hard criticism, is a price that you have to pay for having the power. Um, And that the central problem in American society throughout history and today isn't too much accountability for people in power. It's too little accountability historically. I mean, we're still sitting here right now with, with army bases that are named after soldiers who took up the cause of slavery. And so it doesn't feel to me like we're at the stage where we're like post-racism, where like the number one thing that we need to worry about is people being too concerned about racism, right? So the major institutions are still overwhelmingly, you know, run by white people and, and by white men. And so I don't know, I guess, I don't know what to say about that. I don't know. Does well, that? I, it would really yeah. help me if you guys could cite for me, if you're able to, um, like what's an example of someone who has been canceled? I mean, I, I look at the Andrew Sullivan, mm. Andrew, who is a friend and who I think is a brilliant, you know, writer and like said 
so many interesting, important things over the years. Andrew has platforms. He's got places to write. No, nothing, nothing's happening with Andrew. Um, I mean, he, I'm sure he's getting savaged on Twitter and, and ratioed on Twitter or whatever it is. But who, who's can, what is an example of cancellation where someone is literally canceled? Their, 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 their career is gone because of something they have done or said. And even if it's just a moment of something that they've done or said, because that, that's what's exa- so hard. Well, I should just say that one of my other main criticisms of this letter is that its answer to your question was not specifics. It was these weird sentences with passive construction, like editors are fired for running controversial pieces. Well, you J- can read James the- Bennett at the New York Times, James, okay, who's also a friend also- who I l- love and admire, and he lost his job. And that that is true. Yes. And there were some really sad things about that. It was also a complicated story. But there's also Ian Baruma, who'd gotten fired from the New York Review of Books for running, excuse me, like what I thought was like a pretty horrible apologia piece about Me Too from a Canadian writer whose name is not in my head. Um, and Baruma's the signer of the letter. So maybe that sentence is about him. Anyway, I, I think the example of late that has really troubled me and which does feel to me deeply unfair is this young um, researcher, David Shore, who got fired from Civics Analytics. Um, and I think I actually talked about this on the GapFest. He tweeted the research of this um, African-American, I believe, sociologist, Omar Wasau, who had looked into the question of uh, the effect of different kinds of protests in the 60s. So protests that were entirely nonviolent versus protests that included some looting or rioting. And Shore tweeted about this, and then like people criticized him for being racist for sharing this research, and he was fired. And that did seem like a real overcorrection. But is it a trend? Is it something that we have to worry about generally, right? Like when social movements include a lot of upheaval and people are wrestling for power and taking power who haven't had it before and who deserve to have more power, they're never going to like do it all correctly, right? It's going to be messy. They're not going to say everything with complete decorum. They're not going to... only go so far that like the establishment finds acceptable. That's just not how it's going to be. And so I don't mean to sound callous about David Shore from what I know it, and I don't know anything inside. It looks like he was treated very unfairly. But does that mean we have some big problem in our kind of culture of letters that we have to deal with? I feel like that I feel really uncertain about. It just feels way, way premature to decide that right now. I didn't follow that issue. There's this the, the one I did follow is there's story about a woman who had shown up in a kind of ironic blackface to a hollow random Halloween party a couple of years ago in Washington. It wasn't a random party. It was a, t- a Washington Post cartoonist Tom Tolles' party. Sorry, go ahead. Because well, I think I mean, that's the random. only reason it got. I mean, I agree uh, with you. This is a bad yes, story and it got written. The, the Post wrote a three thousand word story about this yeah. woman and you know what happened when she showed up in blackface. She was trying to comment on Megyn Kelly in blackface, and it was a disastrously stupid mistake, and she felt terrible about it, and she went to therapy afterwards. And this was about kind of what happened to two young women of color who who confronted her. her at the party. And there was nothing wrong with the story. There was nothing wrong with what these young women did to speak to her. Uh, what was wrong was that this woman's employers fired her. 
And the the problem wasn't with David Shore. It doesn't seem to me that that there was this uh, reckoning or this attack on him on Twitter. Or, or, I don't know. I don't know the issues. Well, the problem is like wh- what kind of employer is like, oh, yes, there's a mob at the gates here. Take have my have have my employee's body. Take it. I mean, that seems to me where the failing is. It isn't that the debate is happening. It's that the, these employers are so gutless that they that they just are like toss people out the door. I wish I had uh, read more about the David Shore piece before having this conversation. Um, Emily, I thought that there was that the story was a little bit more complicated than uh, the way you presented it. But 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 regardless, um, I think, David, you're point, I think the response to your point would be that the people who are complaining about this, part of their target is the employers, right? They want employers to not inappropriately fire people for, for Uh, once the, when those people have been criticized um, by, you know, by the mob or, you know, on Twitter or, or in whatever, whatever sense. Now, again, I, I, I'm not taking a position on any of the particular cases just because, again, my view is that, um, and I think that the David Shore one is an example of this, is that we simply do not know enough about everything that happened and everything that that employer was aware of. And again, I, ha- I might have this wrong, um, but I thought that there was a non-disclosure agreement um, that was signed in that case, which... That's true. Uh, yeah. That's why we don't know. Okay. Um, but as a lawyer, when, when I hear that there's a non-disclosure agreement, my immediate thought is um, that there are some things that both parties don't want to disclose. And Well, right. But I think it was maybe a pre-existing entity. Uh, anyway, getting into the weeds of this. I'm not positive about that. I mean, is, it, is one of the issues, it's one of the things that, who, which side is the side that wants all ideas to be expressed? in this. So so it feels to me like we're not we're not in a world where people are unable to express ideas. No, we are like definitely ideas not are everywhere. I guess the question Like it's there's too many ideas being expressed. Right. Like people people need to like chill out and like listen a little bit more and stop expressing. Well, I think that's fair. I think a lot of this is just about social media. Like yeah, you can express any idea, but the consequences of expressing some ideas can be that you have a ton of people come after you on social media. Now, I have two minds about that. Part of me just thinks like you have to have a thick skin. If you want to express controversial ideas, that's how it goes. You don't have to look. The other side, though, is if it's starting to translate into real world consequences like firing, then we do have to take this seriously. And also people who work online, when their online presence gets firebombed in that way, that's a huge problem. So there was another casualty of this letter. A trans writer at Vox named Emily Vanderwerf wrote a post and also I think a letter to her HR department in which she was critical of Matt Iglesias, who is one of her colleagues, one of the co-founders of Vox. He had signed the letter. And Emily's note said she didn't want any kind of professional repercussions for Matt, but she wanted to note she was really disappointed that he'd signed the letter because J.K. Rowling, who's written some anti-trans things and kind of made a point of doing that, had signed the letter along with other people um, who've been part of this discussion in a way I think trans people have been critical of. Emily Vanderwerf ended up being just like completely trolled in this horrible, horrible way on really? social media. What the? F- yes, why? And it was awful. Why? 
Why? Because the right wing, like media, you know, places like the Daily Caller got a hold of this post and just really, really went after her. But that what what possible criticism could there be of her saying that, saying it sort of like in that respectful sort of. Well, she did also say that Matt had made her feel slightly less safe. So that's a. So okay. what? Yes. Well, but I mean, she was seen, even though she said, I don't want to have any professional repercussions. I think the part of, and I do not share this view. I felt terrible for her and what happened, but I think there were people who were super skeptical and were like, this is really disingenuous. You are calling out one of your colleagues in this public way. You know, you're pretending that you don't want him canceled slash fired, but actually you do. And so then there was a lot of suspicion of her. And then this sort of horrible, like migration into right world crazy town land um i just to me the that it was an example of the fact that the people who end up really bearing the brunt of this kind of trolling are people from disadvantaged marginalized groups it was not an accident that the person who ended up like bearing so much of the brunt of this was a trans person. Now, this also happened to a lot, huge tidal wave of trolling to Jenny Boylan, who's also trans, who had signed the letter. And there's just something so sad and awful about that, right? That, like, the people who are vulnerable end up paying a price for this discussion that lots of much more, you know, kind of traditionally safe white cis male writers were not having any kind of repercussions like that come their way. Um, anyway, I think that is both about this cultural moment and also just like the real pitfalls of social media. David, can I ask you a question? Am I allowed to do that? Yes. I was just wondering, David, if you, if you think there is any problem here that's worth talking about. And by problem, I really do mean uh, I'm not taking a position. I mean, the problem might be uh, that, um, you know, the problem might be there's too much criticism of holding people accountable. Um, or the problem might be that there's too much vitriol and, you know, pushing people out of jobs or, or sort of harassing people so, uh, thoroughly online. Um, do you think there's a problem on either side? Well, I, let me try to get to that. So I was thinking about me too, and when Me Too happened, it was so clear in, almost, in virtually every case of somebody who had their career ruined and and their reputation disgraced. In almost every case there, you can argue in a couple in the margins, that those people were real serial misbehaviors, you know, who'd done grotesque things, sometimes criminal things. And it was hard to work up a lot of sympathy for almost everyone involved in that case. This, what's going on here, I find so confounding and confusing. The only thread that I see that I can hold on to and that I'm going to try to spin into a rope is that the internet culture and the way that people talk to each other and engage with each other and gather around each other and gang up on each other is a very bad thing. (laughs) That the, the The theme here seems to be the internet has this capacity to cause, you know, a fission reaction that just makes everything explode in a way that things get blown up when they should, when it shouldn't, when they shouldn't get blown up, there should just be a small little fire instead. And, and that part has me concerned. And I don't know whether I'm concerned 
because I am on the side of the Harper's letter writers or counter letter. I just can't, I literally can't even wrap my head around it. I feel like the medium and the way these debates are constructed, I just get this from looking at Twitter a little bit, you know, from the time I spend on, I look at Twitter a lot, but from the time I spend on Twitter and just feel like, man, I don't want to be in these conversations. I don't want to engage. This seems like such a poisonous, toxic way to engage with, with people. And that makes me feel like it's the medium is the problem, not either the people who want free speech or don't want free speech or want to cancel or don't want to be canceled. That that part of it is harder for me to follow. It's the medium that that has me concerned. That seems right to me. And I get and and this is, you know, perhaps an obvious point, but and what's so hard about that is again to connect to you, you know, the police reform conversation, the criminal justice conversation we were just having. Uh, or even the Me Too conversation, there are so many instances where the bad actors, the only reason they were revealed and that enough outrage was generated to uh, hold them to any account was because of because because of the internet and Twitter. And and I don't I just I don't right. know what to do about yeah. that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> dilemma to bring up. I mean, I sometimes feel like journalists in particular would be so much better off without Twitter because we are not at our best in that forum. And it leads to the kind of vicious debates that are not really that consonant with our profession in some ways, right? Like we don't have editors, we need editors. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, what you just said, James, is totally true. When I get out of my own sort of narrow slice of this world, you see how important these tools are for bringing pressure to bear, mostly on government officials and people who had no forum for that, had no voice, who were dismissed by the gatekeeper publishers. Like now they have this direct yeah. line. It's incredibly powerful and it can be really important. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, both the points that you guys make are true and, and it's a good tonic to my unsettled myths about I do th the social media. I was just going to say to connect this back to the conversation we were having in the very beginning when we were talking about COVID and Emily and I both talked about our, our personal choices. And I am somebody that, that likes to think in terms of structures and institutions. Um, but this, this dilemma about the internet and what you all are just suggesting about the role of journalists does make, does make me think that we don't yet have a structural fix to this problem of the internet. But what we can do uh, is think about our own personal use and our own personal consumption and how we behave and how we perform. Um, and it does feel a little bit like um, the obligation for uh, maintaining what's really good about this uh, medium and tamping down what's bad uh, resides with us. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Apparently... James Foreman Jr. is not a big fan of cocktail parties, but I'm hoping he's a fan of cocktails, even without the parties. So, James, when you are when you're having a cocktail, not at a party, just with some other person, some any human being, maybe with your with your child. I hope your child's not having the cocktail with you when you're having a cocktail. What are you going to be chattering about with them? I think I'm going to recommend uh, a family dinner activity. I, I don't know about y'all, but. A long time ago, we gave up asking our son, how is your day? Because we never get a response, you know, other than fine. 
Um, but it turns out he has plenty to say if we ask the question a little bit differently. So for years, we've had dinner time activities like Peaks and Pits, where we go around the table and talk about highlights and lowlights of our day, or Two Truths and a Lie, where you say three things that happened to you that day, two of them being true, one of them being made up, everybody else, everybody else has to guess, which is the lie. Um, so my chatter is about a company that I found recently called Vertelis, based out of the Netherlands. And they produce a card game, which for us has been a great way to prompt family dinner conversations. So the game is essentially a stack of cards with a question on each one. And we don't play it as a game exactly. We just have our son pick a card out of the stack uh, each night, and then we all answer the prompt. And the cards have questions like, if you win the lottery tomorrow, which three things would you do first? Or um, one that our son has really enjoyed, what do or, or, or don't you like about your upbringing? And so our son loves this, and uh, some of the questions don't resonate with him, and when they don't, he picks another one, but lots of them do, and he often ends up actually wanting to pick more than one card, which, given that television awaits after dinner, we consider a good sign. So uh, this game you can find at at vertelis.com, and I highly recommend it. Emily, top that Foreman chatter. My cocktail chatter this week is about a really interesting... I would say investigation that NPR did. NPR tried to figure out how many ballots have been rejected, how many mail-in ballots specifically in the primaries thus far. And their concern about this, obviously, is that we can expect a much higher percentage and just higher number of mail-in ballots in November. And so they're trying to figure out what's the risk here of these ballots not getting counted. And they found that about, so far this year, 65,000 absentee ballots had been rejected because they arrived past the deadline, often through no fault of the voter. There are also other problems with signature matching um, and other technical flaws that come into play. And what NPR was finding was that about 1% of the ballots in these races were being rejected. And that's actually high um, when you start thinking of thousands of people being disenfranchised. So I think the question here is what state should be doing about this. There are already a bunch of court challenges that the Democratic Party has been behind to try to extend deadlines to give people more time to return the ballot. Um, You know, does the ballot have to arrive by Election Day or could it just be postmarked by Election Day? Are there other ways we can try to make sure that people who want to vote wind up having their votes counted? So check out this NPR story. It is by Pam Fessler and Elena Moore. My chatter is about a photograph that Mike Pompeo shared on social media, Secretary of State Pompeo. So it's a photo of Pompeo's dog with a, surrounded by a bunch of toys, most prominently a Winnie the Pooh toy. And I think the caption was something like Mercer, which is presumably the name of the dog, which is weird. I wonder if he named his... Isn't Mercer one a really rich Republican funder? Isn't Robert Mercer one of those Republican funders? Anyway, Mercer... Uh, with his favorite toys. There is a vast amount of speculation, which appears to be founded in truth, that this is a coded insult to Xi Jinping and the Chinese. Because Winnie the Pooh is a censored nickname for Xi Jinping. You cannot search for Winnie the Pooh on the Chinese internet. If you do, you'll just get sort of harmless Chinese government-controlled pages. His Because he reportedly has a... He looks his body type. He looks a little pooish in his body type. And people who know a lot about the Chinese internet and know about what's, what's going on think that this is clearly a coded insult that Pompeo has sent 
towards the Chinese. I don't know what to make of it. I don't know if this is a good strategy. It's a bad strategy. It doesn't appear to have actually made it onto the Chinese internet because as I said, Winnie the Pooh is censored. So if you search for this in China, you wouldn't see it anyway. But is it useful for Mike Pompeo to be taunting, mysteriously, secretly, photographically taunting Xi Jinping in this way? I don't know. Maybe it's good. I'm not sure. But it's just it's just a curious, curious episode. And I would love for someone who knows a lot about China and the Chinese internet and Mike Pompeo to tell me whether this is in fact uh, some new needling strategy that the U.S. has to try to unsettle Xi Jinping. Listeners, you have sent us great chatters again this week. You've tweeted them to us at at SlateGabFest. Thank you very much. Please keep them coming. And actually, we have a, a, a China-related listener chatter too. James Edward Dillard, at James Dillard, sends over a podcast, which I have not yet listened to, but I'm super excited about it. But it's a podcast about the different kinds of corruption in China and which ones hurt economic growth and which ones do not hurt, hurt economic growth. And it's called uh, How Corruption Works in China. It's a podcast called China Talk, and I'm excited to listen to it. So thanks for sending that, James Dillard. That is our show for today. The Gaffes is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director. June Thomas is managing producer. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. You should follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest and tweet chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and James Foreman Jr., so great to have you, James. You should definitely, definitely, definitely come back. I am David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? James came on the show, as we talked about during the show, promising optimism, promising to be a ray of sunlight in a dark time. He failed. He failed miserably at that. He was as gloomy as you'd expect, given the news, as gloomy as me and Emily. But, But he promises now in our Slate Plus segment to bring some cheer and optimism to the world. So, James, you have started... A program it's called i think it's called the access to law school program and uh, we're going to talk about it so tell us what it is who it's for why did you start it and what what its purpose is going to be absolutely I, I and i appreciate having the chance to talk about it and i'll say up front so that any listeners are primed i am looking for a, a new name for the program the access to law school program is kind of a placeholder um so if anybody hears this and uh is uh, has an idea for for a name they can communicate it to me on Twitter or uh, however you want to do it. The idea of the program is that um, we're recruiting twenty fellows from the New Haven area. It's important for me to this that this is a local program, and I'll talk a little bit about that. But these are aspiring in some sense of the word law students. So you have to be a junior or a senior in college, or you can be a college graduate. And indeed, we've gotten all of the applications in and we have a bunch of people that have been out of college for 5, 10, 15 years in some cases. Um, the kind of person that always, you know, maybe argues a lot with their friends, always thought, oh, maybe you should go to law. You know, people said you should go to law school, but life got in, in the way. Um, they, you know, had, they had kids. Uh, they got off track. They got incarcerated. We're very aggressively recruiting um, from among people that have been in 
uh, incarcerated and in the criminal legal system. And so along with 12 Yale law students who are going to be taking a seminar with me on this topic, we are going to be teaching this year-long class, which is going to be about exposure to different legal careers. Lots of people think, oh, you know, I want to be a lawyer, but they don't actually know what the real careers are. Uh, how to navigate the admissions process, how to navigate the financial aid proce process, how to deal with stereotype threat and imposter syndrome uh, and micro and macro aggressions that as a minority student, a student of color, or a first-generation student, you will face. And I should say, I should have said this earlier, but we're really targeting students of color, underrepresented minorities, and first-generation uh, students. And also a very intensive LSAT, which is the test you have to take to get into law school uh, preparation program. So the basic idea is to try to provide um, students that have a lot of potential but not a lot of access the kind of resources and support that students from a wealthier background maybe just take for granted. You know, I I'm hopeful that we launch this fall, we'll have our first 20 fellows, and the idea is that a year from now they'll be applying to law school. And I really view this as you know individual mobility for those students. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.